Welcome to Whose Podcast Is It Anyway? A show where our host engages in a lively conversation with the guest. The guest chooses the topic and the host has no prior preparation or knowledge of the topic. Please note that the opinions expressed on this program are the opinions and views of the host and the guests and are not necessarily the same opinions and views of Al Seeger or Point of Insanity Game Studio. And now, here's your host, Chad Knight. Hello and welcome to Whose Podcast Is It Anyway? Episode 51. Deep from the mosquito-ridden wilderness of northern Door County, I bring you this special episode of Whose Podcast Is It Anyway? Welcome to my mind mare. As I sit here, laptop in front of me, soda next to me, and realize how early in the morning I'm writing this, I wonder about a thing or two. Let's delve into my mind mare and see what is percolating today, shall we? Won't you follow me? I'm here looking forward to a bunch of movies coming out soon, and I thought I'd give a list uh, and short explanation of why I want to see it, if there is a why. Sometimes there's just movies you want to see for no fathomable reason. 1. Spider-Man A new reboot of an old movie. I think they might finally have made a Spider-Man movie worth watching. And now I say that because ever since they really did the big Spider-Man movie with... uh, Help me out here, Scott. Tobey Maguire, the first one? Yes, Tobey Maguire. The the first two of those movies were okay. Yes. The third movie was horrid. Yes, they tried to do too much because they added both Sandman and Venom. Right, and and I found that too with when I did the Batman, the new Batman trilogy. With the third movie, they tried to do too much. They had Catwoman, they had Bane, they had... There was a third one too, but it was it was too many bad guys. And if you do that... You can't build a good enough storyline about each of the bad, each of the villains in order to come off with a good movie. It seems rushed or it seems poorly made. Right. And in fact, with the second Michael Keaton Batman, you even ran into that a little with Catwoman and Penguin. Which is the least favorite of my, uh, of that Batman series of the 90s. So anyway, the second movie, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. I don't know a lot about this. Other than it's a space flick that looks amazing. The, fil- the filmography had me sold. And I'm going to go see it. Uh, I don't know. I think it's based on a comic book or uh, or, or something like that. Uh, maybe not a comic book, but maybe a... Uh, maybe a manga? Yeah, something like that. But it looks amazing. Have you seen the previews for it? I have not. I've not even heard of it. This oh. is the first time I'm hearing of it. I, I definitely recommend you go out to YouTube or whatever and look at the... Um, trailer? The trailer. Okay. It looks amazing. It, it's basically, think Coruscant times a thousand. Okay. It's a, it's, it's a, what do they call it? It's a... Dyson Sphere? No, it's a, it's a world of a thousand planets. It's, it's kind of like the Trek Collective where they all work together, but okay. they keep their individuality. So it's really kind of a cool looking concept. Now, whether or not it pulls off that way, it's well beyond me. Uh, the third one, Dunkirk. Uh, you know, this is just the history buff in me. I think it's going to be a good flick, the the Battle of Dunkirk. The fourth one, Atomic Blonde, a noir-looking film that, that just looks good. Have you seen the previews of that one? I have not. Okay, that one I believe is based off of a um, comic book. Uh, no, not a comic book, a uh, novel, um, graphic novel. 
Okay. So it looks really cool. It also it stars. I want to say, oh, I forget her name now. Um. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It looks amazing. Fifth movie, The Dark Tower. Now, as you all know, I did a whole Welcome to My Mind Mare on this about a month ago. Uh, it comes out uh, early in August. I just can't wait to see this movie. This is the one movie that if I don't see any of the other movies on this list, I will see that one. I will see that one when it opens on August 4th. And I can't think of anything that's going to get in the way, including recording this podcast, because I will have either pre-recorded or record after that date so that I am there to watch this. The Hitman's Bodyguard. Uh, Ryan Reynolds and Samuel L. Jackson. Same movie. I don't really need to say any more about it than that. True enough. And then the seventh one is called Birth of the Dragon. And this one is kind of weird because it's, it's a kung fu movie. It's a young and upcoming martial artist, Bruce Lee, challenges legendary kung fu master Wong Jack Man to a no-holds-barred fight in Northern California. I remember reading about when this took place because Wong Jack Man was offended that Bruce Lee was teaching Kung Fu to Westerners, to Americans. Right, right. And and the thing about this is it's based in reality, even though they're not they're not selling it as a straight up history, they're calling it a dramatized history. So I still think I mean I'm not huge into the martial art movies, but this one piques my interest, so and then next in the My Mind Mare, we have now introduced two new cats into our one cat home. It has been interesting, to say the least. Uh, a bunch of hissing and a little bit of a, of a row. I think they are trying to determine dominance. I think the two new cats have no idea what's in store for them. Our cat has been a lone tiger, for a lack of a better word, and this is her domain. Uh, I think it's going to be a long few days, but... In the end, I think things will be fine. I mean, I've had cats on and off throughout my entire life. You introduce new ones sometimes. They don't get along right away, but they usually figure it out. Now, you're having the exact opposite situation that I was having when we introduced two new cats into our one-cat household. Okay. Because we had, uh, for the longest time, we had my wife's cat, Jasby. Unfortunately, he passed away at 21, uh, a little over that a year is and a, a half ago. That is a nice long life for a cat, though. Yes. And so we were left with... Uh, my daughter Penny's cat, Gracie. Okay. Gracie had always been a little skittish, but with Jasby's help, she was a little more assertive. She would come out and allow herself to be pet, and when it was just her, she started to wander the whole house. Then we went to the Humane Society and rescued uh, these two litter mates, Ted and Lucy, and for some reason, when we brought Ted and Lucy home, Gracie freaked out. And she started hiding. Okay. And so the kittens ended up with the run of the house. <laughs> so we've since modified the situation somewhat. Um, we let Ted and Lucy roam free during the day. And then when we're getting ready for bed, we put Ted and Lucy in our bedroom, close the door. And then we let Gracie out so that she has her space uninterrupted because she and Lucy get along okay, but Ted's a big bully. Okay. All right. So... I think this will be good for our cat because, like I said, she's been a lone cat for so long. I think they'll get along in the end, but I think there's going to be a couple weeks of trying to figure out who's in charge. Exactly. So with that and mind mare. All right. So for our first guest introduction tonight, well, you've already heard his voice. Uh, what can I say about Scott that hasn't been said before? 
Not much, actually. He's the co-host of our podcast, uh, Want to Hear Something Interesting. And he's usually the guy who's being interesting. Scott, why don't you go ahead and tell the people about our podcast? All right. Well, once a month, we get together and we say, what do we want to talk about this time? And we bandy ideas back and forth, and we come up with the one that we're going to do. We each do some individual research. We put our own spin on things, take it from different angles. As Chad has mentioned, and those of you who listen to him on a regular basis know, he's a huge history buff. I'm more of a trivia buff. I like the historical aspects of things. But those of you who know me, I'm an English teacher. So I look for the literary aspect. I look for the interpretation of things, whereas Chad is more fact-based. Right, yeah, I look more at dates and, and things like that, and things that are concrete. Right, and I approach it from the perspective of, now, what did this mean to the larger society, to the larger world, to the people who were in the middle of all this happening? Right, so if that sort of idea appeals to you, come check out our podcast. Which, in August, what's our topic? In August, we are doing the Scopes Monkey Trial. Yes. Since the last time you were on here, I have started a new segment to the guest introduction called Five Questions. Okay. I ask you a series of five questions. They should be relatively easy to answer. Are you ready? Sure. Do I have to answer them in English? I would prefer you do. Okay. (laughs) Because I think most of my listeners are English, and because I only speak English. Okay. All right, so number one, your favorite superhero. Ooh, that's a tough one. When I was younger, I was a huge X-Men fan. Okay. And X-Men are still my favorite group. Okay. Um, I, I think largely because I always identified with that whole outcast mentality. Now, for the longest time, my favorite was Cyclops. Okay. For two reasons. One, his name was Scott. My name is Scott. Okay. So I had that direct one-to-one identification. The other is, he got Jean Grey. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, too, was a big X-Men fan back in the day. I was never huge into comic books, but I remember from the time I was probably 10 or so until about the time I was 16 or 17, every time I had my allowance, I'd go down to the store each month and I would buy the Uncanny X-Men. Right. That was the only comic book I ever really read. I mean, I dabbled in other ones, but that was the one that I read for, you know, five, six years straight. So I totally get that. I was more of a Beast fan. Okay. But that was because he kind of walked that line of good or bad. Exactly. You know, so. Actually, I don't know. Did you ever watch the original 80s X-Men animated series? I didn't. Okay. There is an excellent episode. It's a, a short arc. Okay. But Beast, as you know, is also Dr. Hank McCoy. He's a right. brilliant scientist. And he was played by Frasier. Yes. In uh, in the X3. newest... Yeah, X3. Yes. So I, I really enjoyed that portrayal of Beast. Yes. So in this short story arc, uh, Beast is working on a treatment to restore the sight to this lovely young blind woman. And over the, the course of the story arc, a... Um, not so much rogue group, but an anti-mutant hate group breaks into the hospital and kidnaps her as a what they call a mutie lover. Okay. And Beast loses it. Now, Beast is always the calm, rational, level-headed one. Right. And usually 
Wolverine is the one who blows a gasket. And what was wonderfully ironic, and actually one of the other characters mentioned this in the, the final episode of this story arc, because Wolverine was also chasing down this mutant hater group. And it turns out that the leader of the mutant hater group was the son of Sabretooth, another mutant right, and right. Wolverine's arch nemesis. And so Beast is just on a rampage. He is throwing people aside, trying to get to this young blind woman with whom he's fallen in love. And Wolverine actually uses strategy and tactics and gets a portable Cerebro unit okay. from the X-Mansion that can project holograms. And he sneaks in, doesn't break in, he sneaks in to this hate group's headquarters and turns on the hollow projector unit and up comes a holograph of Sabretooth in action. And it goes through all of the information that they know about Sabretooth and it finishes up with his real name. And so Wolverine reveals to the entire hate group that their leader is the son of a mutant. And they all start fighting amongst themselves and Beast is able to slip in and save the girl. And I think it's Kitty Pride at the time called Shadowcat. Okay. Because she's gone through so many name changes. But she makes the kind of offhand comment that uh, something to the order of, well, this is ironic. Wolverine's using his head and Beast is a ravaging monster. Right, right. Okay, but that still doesn't answer the question of who's your favorite superhero? I'm really not sure. I don't know that I actually have one currently. Okay. I do really... Probably my favorite movie superhero currently is... Bruce Banner, the Mark Ruffalo okay. interpretation of the Bruce Banner character in the Avengers movies. Okay, which would bring us to the Hulk by yes. default. Okay, mm -hmm. fair enough. Question number two, your favorite author? Terry Pratchett. kind of figured that'd be your answer, but yes. I want you to take a step back and actually think about it. For the longest time, it was J.R.R. Tolkien. Okay. Hobbit, Lord of the Rings. Right, yep. Now, I do have a few authors that I really enjoy, and mm -hmm. I en enjoy them for different reasons. I still love Tolkien. Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, iconic masterpieces of fantasy literature. Correct. Now, then we have Jim Butcher, author of the Codex Alera fantasy series, but I appreciate him for his Dresden Files urban fantasy series. Then we have David Weber, now, David Weber writes two series that I really enjoy. One is futuristic military sci-fi, and one of the things I love about his series, apart from the fact that he actually does a lot of sound scientific research, mm -hmm. and it's behind the sci-fi that's in his work, but the biggest thing I love about him is that particular series has a very strong central female character. The entire series revolves around um, this woman, Honor Harrington, who is in the military of the planetary nation um, to which she belongs. Okay. David Weber also writes a fantasy series, and the world building that he put into that I, I think is astounding. Okay, fair enough. All right, so number three, your favorite musician? 
for the longest time, it would have been the uh, Seattle band Queensryche. Okay. I was introduced to them kind of late. I, I first heard them when their Eyes of a Stranger video was on MTV, which is okay. off of their album Operation Mindcrime. That was the early 90s? Late 80s. Late 80s, okay. Yes. Um, when I heard that, I went out and bought the album. And Operation Mindcrime is actually a concept album. It tells a story from start to finish. Right. So if you listen to it on random, it doesn't make any sense. Then I went out and got all their earlier stuff, which was really good. Then Empire came out. Between Eyes of a Stranger and some of the tracks they recorded for Empire, they got radio airplay on mainstream radio stations, not just heavy metal stations. And it was excellent. The lead singer, Jeff Tate, is a trained opera singer, or at the time. Neither he nor Chris DeGarmo, who was the lead guitarist, and the two of them wrote most of the music, neither of them are with the band anymore. Okay. Then after Empire came Promised Land, huge disappointment, and I kind of stopped listening to it. Okay, fair enough. Favorite color? Blue. There. See, that was a nice easy one. I told you these were easy. Yep. All right, number five. This one actually is a curiosity of mine, so I thought instead of us doing this off air, it would be fun to do it on air. Sure, why not? So, what is your favorite TV show or series of all time? Hmm. Because I know you're a big movie guy, but you're an even bigger, like, TV guy. I am. I watch, uh, as my wife would say, far too much TV. Don't we all? Yes. Um, I would probably have to say that my favorite series is the Sci-Fi Channel original series, Warehouse 13. Oh, that is a good one. Yes. Uh, Eureka comes in a close second. Eureka, also a good one. All right. So now, bonus question. Okay. I'm going to see if you can tag me. What do you think is my favorite TV series of all time? I don't know. You watch an awful lot of them. I do. Um, I know you are a huge fan of the uh, what was on Sci-Fi Channel, the reality series, Ghost Hunters. Yes. But I also know that you're a huge Three Stooges fan, but I don't know that that would count as a series. No, not really. Um, I'm not sure. Actually, okay, this this is kind of putting me out there, but my favorite series of all time is the Andy Griffith Show. Really? Yeah, I absolutely okay. love it. I If I catch it on TV or whatever, I stop and I watch it. I own... I don't own the entire series. I should. I own lots of like collections like the Barney Fife collection or the Ant B collection and stuff like that. So I probably have a good portion of the series, but yes. yeah, I just absolutely love it. Now, how did you feel about Mayberry RFD? I was okay with it. Okay. It wasn't it wasn't Andy Griffith. No. But it was okay. So now it's your time, Scott, to talk about anything else you want to talk about that we haven't touched on, except your topic at this point. We'll get to that in a little bit. Um, no, not really. As you said, we are up here in northern Door County, uh, swatting mosquitoes the size of sop with camels. Yeah, something like that. We killed one in the car earlier today that was about the size of a sparrow. Now, of course, I'm exaggerating, but it was huge. Yes. Left quite the smear on the windshield. Yes. So, all right, let's jump into today in history, and then we'll come back to you. Sounds good. So today in history, July 21st, 1925, the trial of the century draws national attention. Schoolteacher John T. Scopes is convicted of violating Tennessee's law against teaching evolution in public schools. See, people, this is where we get ideas. The case debated in the so-called trial of the century was never really in doubt. 
The jury only conferred for a few moments in the hallway before returning to the courtroom with a guilty verdict. Nonetheless, the supporters of evolution won the public relations battle that was really at stake. Despite popular perceptions of the case, fueled in part by the Broadway play and the movie Inherit in the Wind, the Scopes trial was never more than a show trial. On May 4, 1925, the American Civil Liberties Union published a newspaper advertisement offering to help any Tennessee school teacher challenge the new law that had outlawed the teaching of evolution. George W. Rapalay, a New Yorker who had moved to Dayton, Tennessee, read the ad and persuaded the local townspeople that Dayton should host a trial in order to spark interest in the town. The leaders of the less than 2,000 residents of Dayton quickly came around to Rapala's idea. The school superintendent agreed with the law but wanted to gain publicity for the town. Even Dayton's prosecutors were in on the deal. The last piece of the puzzle was to find a defendant. 24-year-old John T. Scopes, a local high school science teacher and football coach, agreed to fill the role since he wasn't planning on staying in Dayton for the long term. No one was really concerned whether he had actually taught evolution to his students. The fact that he had been using the state-approved science textbook, which included a chapter on evolution, was deemed sufficient. A warrant was made for Scopes' arrest, and word went out that the trial would begin in the summer. Although the rest of Tennessee was displeased with Dayton's plan, 500 seats were added to the town's courtroom for press and spectators, and loudspeakers were set up on the lawn outside and in four auditoriums around town. This proved necessary when the nation's leading figures in the evolution debate hijacked the case from the local attorneys. William Jennings Bryan, a former congressman who had twice run for president before serving as Secretary of State for Woodrow Wilson, took over the prosecution. Bryan had personally initiated the campaign against evolution in the United States. The Tennessee law was his first major success. Knowing that it would be the perfect forum to debate Bryan on the evolution and create creationism issue, the great liberal lawyer Clarence Darrow wormed his way into the case as the defense attorney. While the press flooded into Dayton for the showdown between these two larger-than-life figures, the Chicago radio station broadcast the trial live, a first in America. The trial opened on July 10th with magnificent speeches from both Bryan and Darrow. However, it soon became evident that the trial judge was not going to play along. He cut off every attempt by Darrow to debate the validity of evolution. The trial would have been completely uneventful except for a creative gambit by Darrow. He called Brian as a witness. Although the judge would never have allowed a prosecutor to be called as a defense witness, Brian didn't dare back down to the challenge. In a famous exchange, Darrow questioned Brian on the literal interpretation of the Bible's account of the beginning of the world. With masterful questioning, Darrow forced Brian to admit that a purely literal interpretation was not possible, making him look very foolish. Darrow's performance didn't save Scopes from a conviction and a $100 fine. It was later overturned on a technicality. But in the mainstream press, the theory of evolution clearly won the debate. There's not much to say about this. I mean, we'll go into depth on this on uh, want, to, want to Hear Something Interesting. I never knew this was a show trial. It was more of a show trial than, say, Plessy versus Ferguson, which had taken place a little earlier and was challenging segregation, blacks and whites. Okay. So, but again, in that case, the defendant, who was actually a uh, African-American who was light-skinned enough to pass for white and had passed for most of his lifetime, volunteered to be the essentially the centerpiece 
and he in when he was in a position to be arrested for violating the law he identified himself as african-american and informed them that he was deliberately breaking the law and they needed to call the police <laughs> so i'm sure we'll talk we'll touch on stuff like that as well when we talk the the the, the case on our podcast but Now's the time. Now's the time where we get to talk about what you want to talk about. So, what do you have for us tonight? I'm going to talk about not letting you talk about stuff. You're going to talk about not letting me talk about stuff? Yes. Okay. Expound on that. Certainly. What I want to talk about is censorship. Okay. And specifically... uh, As I've mentioned, I'm an English teacher. Right. The American Library Association every year has Banned Books Week. Right. Where there's a celebration of books that uh, various people or organizations have tried to get banned. Now, one of the things, and it, it kind of ties in with the Scopes trial angle, that always fascinated me was, I'm from Boston. Okay. When I was growing up in Boston, I went to high school the Boston public schools were not allowed to teach reproduction. Oh, And in fact, the biology, like every freshman in high school had to take biology. All of the biology textbooks had the section on reproduction removed. We got up to Gregor Mendel and his beans, and then we jumped straight into dissection. Interesting. Yes. So, I did not have that problem in high school. Now, I'm I'm a few years younger than you, but not that much. No. I mean, you would have graduated... When did you graduate high school? I graduated 88. So you graduated six years before me. Right. So, yeah. So it's not like, um, you know, 20 years or anything like that. So I don't know about Boston in 94, but when I took biology, we, we were taught reproduction. Yeah. Um, I I know... Currently, it's taught, but for a number of years after I graduated, it was still forbidden. See, and and that always makes no sense to me, especially something like biology. Now, you know, we can get into the religious debate on it and all that, but actually, the religious people, you would think that they would want you to know how reproduction works, since their main goal in a lot of cases is to uh, expand the coverage of their religion. Yes. You know, the idea is, and especially in Catholicism, which I think you went to a Catholic high school. No, I went to a public high school. Oh, you went to a public high school? I went to a public high school. I was raised Catholic. Okay. I was an altar boy. As as are most people in Boston, I think. Yes. It's a very, very prominent religion in Boston. Yes. I, too, was raised Catholic. And, you know, one of the things they always tell you is that if you're going to have sex... It should be for procreation. Yes. If you're not having sex for procreation, then it's a sin. Right. So you would think that they would want you to know how this works and how it operates in order for you to make that correct choice from a religious standpoint to not have sex for fun, quote unquote, but to have it for procreation. Yes. And in Boston, my understanding was because I didn't get married in Boston and I never went through pre-marriage counseling. Okay. But my understanding from those friends of mine who were also Catholic and got married in Boston was that the priest explained it to the soon-to-be couple. 
You know, and and that that was the way for a while. Because I know ta- in talking to my mother as I was older and stuff, that's how it happened. Now, when Nikki and I went through pre-marriage counseling in the Catholic Church, because we did get married, well, long story short, we got married by a justice of peace. Right. Three years later, we went in and we had the the wedding um, blessed by the church. Right. But in order to have it blessed by the church, we had to go through uh, the premarital counseling, even though we were already married. I mean, we were in a class by ourselves. We just sat and talked with the priest, and I'm sure he adjusted the way he did things. But he never told us about that kind of stuff. You know, of course, my wife was six months pregnant when we did that. So He probably figured you'd figured it out. Right. But, you know, it's just like, okay, so a priest is a man of the cloth. He is supposed to be celibate. Yes. He should have no ideas on how this works in in theory. But if you consider that they are trained to provide this counseling, theoretically, he has the book learning. Yes, but both you and I have been married for a while now. Yes. Um, I've been been married for going on 21 years, Mm -hmm. and you've been married for... It will be 14 years... Uh, this September. Okay, so we both got time under our belt. Yes. Book learning is not the same. No. <laughs> you know? I don't care how graphic those illustrations are. Exactly. Book learning is not the same. If you watch pornography, that's not happening in the bedroom. Nope. You know, if you're reading the articles in Playboy, that's not happening in your bedroom. And... You know, I would think the church would take a stance on that and actually have people maybe within the church that are uh, either lay ministers or just, you know, the flock that have years of marriage under their belt to take these these people aside and say, okay, this is how marriage really works. Marriage isn't all, you know, happiness and roses and flowers and it gets hard. We both know that. Yes. There are times when you don't want to look at your spouse (laughs) you just like go away just go away for a while yes and it doesn't matter how good your marriage is there are rough spots exactly and in order and and we're getting way off topic here sort of but in order for the church to do this correctly you would think they would go to the people that have the knowledge um quick side story when i was in religious educate religious formation and i was in i don't know ninth or tenth grade and i was in a class and it was called um human sexuality and family or something like that our teacher was a nun and she's telling us you know i mean she's she's teaching the the church line um and as a guy who has taught for six years you can't let your personal thoughts and opinions you know alter what you are teaching. You are teaching the, the the church. You are not teaching your personal views. Right. In a sense, you're being censored. You are, absolutely. And that's kind of where I was going with this. But it was so funny because I got in trouble because anybody that has listened to this podcast know that sometimes I can't keep my mouth shut. And this nun was going on and on and on and she's telling us about this and that and you know she's talking about sex and this and she's asking these really odd questions you know of ninth or tenth graders and finally i just raised my hand and i'm like how why are you teaching us this class and she kind of looked at me and raised an eyebrow and i'm like 
you're a nun. You're, you, you're not, I said something like, you're not supposed to have any type of idea how this works. Well, of course, you know, so then I, I questioned authority. Mm -hmm. So I got sent down to the DRE, the director of religious education. And of course they called my parents and I am scared shitless because my mother wasn't home. They got my dad. Uh oh. And so dad shows up, you know. He's not looking happy. He walks into the room and the DRE's like, well, this is what happened. And one of the coolest things my dad ever said or did is he looks right at the DRE, the DRE and the nun was in there now. And he's like, he's kind of got a point, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And of course, then the rest of that year, it was, it was horrible because that nun hated me. Oh, absolutely. You know? So anytime she could you know, get me in trouble or whatever, you know, I spent a lot of time in the corner, but you know, but yeah, it's exactly it. It's, it's censorship. You know, you would think that to send their message the correct way, they would have someone like me, let's say, or someone like, I don't know, you know, someone who's both Catholic and has the time under their belt to know what's going on. Someone who has credible, believable experience in what they're talking about. Right. So, anyway, um, but yeah, so do people still ban books? Okay, let me let me rephrase that question. Do we still ban books in the United States? Yes. We do? Yes. And what is the criteria? Do you, do you have any idea? It varies from state to state, sometimes even district to district. Okay. Uh, oftentimes, now, book banning is more closely tied to schools. Okay, I was going to say, you're talking from a school perspective, it sounds like. Yes. There, okay. There are people who have tried to get various books taken out of public libraries. Would you believe that there have even been people who've tried to get the dictionary banned from a library? On what cause? The theory is that the young people could be corrupted by going into the library, opening the dictionary, and looking up bad words. Okay, I kind of get the point there, but those same kids are those little kids that you've already given a cell phone to. And you know what? The Urban Dictionary isn't in the library. Right. <laughs> I mean, you really want to be taken aback? Take something you heard on the street and go punch it, punch it in the Urban Dictionary. Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, my God. You know, and I'm not a person that's easily offended, but I have seen Urban Dictionary, and I don't go there on a regular basis because, oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> and it, it, it still blows my mind that, well, uh, take, for example, Playboy magazine. Mm -hmm. Playboy for, I think, a year and a half now has stopped publishing nudity. Correct. And the rationale behind it was that with smartphones and the internet and everything, people have access to graphic porn at the click of a button. So why would Playboy bother with the pictures that are getting it into trouble from people who don't want to take on the World Wide Web? Right. And I get that. But the last thing I had read on that is they're going to be bringing centerfolds back. Maybe Probably. not full. Maybe not full pictographs or whatever you want to, you know, full picture series, but centerfolds back because a lot of their readers 
you know, that's that was partly what they got it for. There are a lot of people, and there are a lot of good articles in Playboy. Yes, which is why they released uh, the version of the magazine called The Smoking Jacket. Right, which didn't have the, the pictorials in it. Right, it also didn't have any of the um, cartoons. <laughs> the crude humor cartoons? Yes. But, you know, so they, they had really good... Um, Content besides the pictures. Right. And unfortunately, that's the thing with people. Is a lot of people will get in their head, oh my God, there's there's pictures of naked ladies in there. We can't have that. Well, but then you're also shutting out these other things. And when uh, Playboy, you know, and, and Hugh Hefner, and they took that aside and they said, okay, we understand not everybody wants to look at the pictures, but we still have a good magazine here, you know? And they said, okay, so we'll release one without that stuff in it. Mm-hmm. And now that's not from the very beginning, obviously. Right. And I don't know when Smoking Jacket started, but they took the steps on their own to say, hey, if you don't want this, we'll give you this. And to me, self-censorship is okay. I don't have a problem with that. If Playboy, you know, LLC or whatever they are says, we're going to give you two options, you choose. Exactly, because then they're making it as a strategic business decision based on analysis of their audience. Correct. You know, it's like um, for a long time in the in the early 90s, mid-90s, I mean, the magazine is still out there, but Maxim was out there. Yes. You could get scantily clad women. So someone, you know, someone that's 15, 16 years old, mom catches them with Maxim. Sure, she might not be happy about it, but he's not really breaking any rules. Correct. Um, it's no worse than if he's at the beach in the summer. Exactly. You know, and, and so things like that. But, okay, so the United States, um, especially in schools, I know that they, um, there was recently, they stopped in the in the uh, D.C. Everest District. They don't teach Mark Twain in a lot of cases because of some of the words he uses in his books. Yes. And to me, I look at that and I go, okay, I understand that you don't like the N-word. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't make the um, the learning the 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 what he was trying to get across, which in a lot of cases was that that N word is not a good thing. Correct. But to make it um, any less of a value as a teaching tool. Now I remember very vividly that in high school I read a book called Black Boy. Yes. Which is right. Richard Wright. Excellent piece. It is. It's a great piece. Um, I own a copy of it because I really enjoyed it in high school. And the times I've read it since then, there's even more in it than what I could garner out of it in high school. Exactly. And think about... They don't teach that anymore. No. And think about all the complaints parents have today that the kids aren't reading because what we're giving them in the classroom isn't engaging them. Okay, now, you and I are avid readers right. of things that interest us. Right. So this was obviously something that interested you. Right. Absolutely. I love Mark Twain. I think he is a genius because he took things of the time when he lived and breathed and said, you know what? I can't necessarily say it's wrong because nobody will buy my books. But what I can do is put it in such a situation where when you look at it, it is nothing but wrong. Exactly. And yes, he used the language at the time. But you know what? I would guess that some of the people that these same people that have a problem with the N-word, the same people that 
they look up to, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, I bet you they used that word too because it was parlance of the time. Right. It wasn't, yes, it was derogatory even then. I get that. I understand that. But it wasn't the same word as it is now. Correct. Um, and we can go into a whole another thing that bothers me about that word more than anything is the fact that the people that complain about a person like me saying it, which I don't, but if I were to say that word, the first person that's going to jump on me is, well, it's a couple of people, some <laughs> black guy who uses it constantly or some uptight mom down the street who doesn't understand what the word really means. She just knows that it's not PC. Correct. And it's just, it blows my mind. The the amount of PC we have in this world, which ties directly into things being banned or um, not used by schools or whatever, it, it just blows my mind that these things are still out there. I mean, I understand countries, other countries where they're not um, a democratic republic like we are. Yes, people, we are not a democracy to, to get a little political on you right now. If we were a democracy, that would mean that every vote counts and it doesn't. But that's a, that's a, that's a whole different episode. But that there are places where there are dictators, where they tell you what to think, what to read, what to watch, what to, you know, whatever. But that's not here. And the fact that we allow that kind of censorship blows my mind. It just does. Um, I, I, how do you feel about that? I'm appalled. I mean, both from a personal freedom standpoint and from an education standpoint. And a lot of times what people are trying to ban or the reason they're trying to ban it to me seems ludicrous. Now, these people, most of them, I would say, based on my research into this, they actually mean well. They truly believe that they are fulfilling a purpose. They are trying to protect some segment of the population. Absolutely. Usually children. I, I totally agree with you. And I and I, I don't think in 95% of the cases, anybody's doing it to be the bad guy or to be just to be a pain in the ass. They they truly believe in their cause. But the problem I find, and, and I think you agree with me, is that is the fact that their reasoning behind it comes down to political correctness in a lot of cases because somebody doesn't like that word or somebody doesn't like that piece of material. Yep. So And it oftentimes it comes down to I think I know better than everybody else. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's arrogance in Absolutely. a lot of respects. Absolutely. So, yeah, I, I mean, what is the – now, you've done more research than, this on me, than me on this, obviously, because I didn't know what we were talking about. <laughs> what is the one book that has been um, banned, let's say, that gives you the most amount of – WTF. <laughs> um, there, there are a few that it's like, what? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the dictionary 
is one that jumps right to the top of the list. Yeah, because that's just silly. <laughs> yes. Um, there have been districts that have banned National Geographic. Because of the pictures from because Africa. Because of the pictures, yes. Although, now, as you know, I'm from Boston. Right. Most people nowadays, and probably for the last 20, 30 years, would consider Boston to be a fairly liberal city. Okay, fair enough. Um, largely because we have a ton of colleges. As we're seeing now in the whole free speech debate and everything. Well, and on college, top of that, you're in Massachusetts. Right. Which is very blue. Yes. However, up until about the early 60s, Boston was one of the most conservative and easy-to-get-something-banned cities in the country. Really? Yes, and it was because of one man. He, he held some position in the city government, and basically his job was to decide what was smut and what wasn't. Interesting. Yes. Now, as you're probably aware, being a history buff, Boston, Massachusetts, that, that part of the country was predominantly founded by Puritans. Right. So very conservative religious groups that left England, left Europe, because they thought the religious organizations were getting too lax or allowing too many freedoms. And so they wanted to found a very pure and chaste society. Right. Uh, to the point that actually for the better part of a century, Christmas was illegal in Massachusetts. Okay. Now, this particular gentleman was in charge of her, had essentially veto power over almost any license in the city. Bookstores needed his approval to open. He could revoke your license if he didn't like some of the books you were selling. Any art exhibit or dance company or movie that came to town, he could say, no, you can't show that. Um, he had authority over bars, liquor licenses, really, things like that. And Massachusetts, for decades, had some of the strictest blue laws in the country. Okay. Up to the point where bar all bars were closed on Sunday because you weren't allowed to sell alcohol on Sundays. Okay. Which was not very popular with the sports teams. I can imagine, yeah. So. So does that mean if the Patriots were at home, they couldn't sell alcohol? They couldn't sell beer. During the game. During the game. Wow. Yes. That had to kill their, maybe not their attendance so much, but the amount of money they bring in. Right. I mean, that had to be horrible. Mm -hmm. On but the yeah. other hand, you didn't have a whole lot of drunk drivers in the parking lot. That's true. That's true. Yes. However, when I was reading the, the story about this guy, it, it reminded me of National Ge the National Geographic issue because there was one particular performance that he allowed to take place and it, it has tinges of WTF has tinges of irony and it has a whole lot of tinge of racism in it which was that there was this traveling dance troupe from Africa okay all of the performers were black and for almost all of the dances all of the performers were topless men and women and he allowed this? He allowed that one on the basis of it was a traditional African tribal dance, and the women being topless was integral to the meaning of the performance. So what I'm hearing is he liked boobies. Probably, yeah. <laughs> so who was this guy? Do you know? I, 
I read the article about him. His name escapes me at the moment. And when I finally decided on what topic I was going to do, I did not have access to the book in which I have the article. Okay, yeah, we'll just call him John T. Boston. How about yep, that? that works. <laughs> so, okay, so this guy had control over all this stuff, and this was for decades? It was a couple of decades. He, wow. he worked in the city government. He knew people, and his power was such that no one wanted to cross him. That blows my mind. Well, I mean, if you think of it, think about uh, New York, turn of the 20th century, Tammany Hall, yeah. the political machines. Think of Chicago during the the Prohibition. They had the same kind of thing with the with the um, with the bootleggers. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it happens, but it's just that even that concept blows my mind. Um. All right. So, but books. What? I mean, there have, are books. Like of, I can go down to Barnes and Nobles. Yep. And I can buy Mein Kampf. Right. I can go down to Barnes and Nobles and I can buy the Anarchist Cookbook. Yep. You can go down to Barnes and Noble and buy Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. Right. That is one of the most frequently attempted to be banned books in the U.S. Correct. And I've never read that book. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that book's about. But I have heard of controversy around it. So do you know the book? Uh, I know it a little. The core controversy with it is that um, the character, Margaret, as the title implies, is questioning the existence of God because of all the horrible things that are happening in her life. Now, this was written in the 60s, right? Or was I it before so, that? Yeah. 50s or 60s. Okay, so at that point, we were still pretty, at least on the surface, a religious co country. Yes. So I can see where the, the controversy comes from. But, you know, to question whether or not God is there, I think everybody does that at some point. I think that's a real big basis in faith is, you know, you kind of sit down and you're like, is there a God? And your faith comes out of how you answer that question. Right. So um, to have them to, to them to say, well, we're going to ban that. I guess I can understand the concept, but it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yes. Oh, you want to know doesn't make sense? Sure. Ray Bradbury, Fahrenheit 451. Okay. Why? What was the basis of that one? Well, the basis was the people didn't actually read it and understand what he was talking about. For those of you who haven't read the book, the there's a character in the book who is a fireman. Okay. But his job is to take a blowtorch, go around, round up controversial books, and burn them. And he decides that he's not going to do this anymore because he thinks it's wrong to burn books and to censor society. And he gets into a lot of trouble, he becomes a fugitive so on and so forth. Right. People were trying to ban it either because they didn't like him questioning the government and not following orders or because they missed the point and thought it was a book about like celebrating and encouraging banning books. And of course the title of that book 451 degrees Fahrenheit is the the temperature at which paper burns. Exactly. So I've never actually read the book. That is one of them that has been on the reading list for a long time, haven't gotten there. Uh, but I think somehow now it has kind of slipped up the list because mm -hmm. it sounds like a really interesting concept. It is. Um, but yeah, you know, and that's the other thing is people go off half cocked, mm -hmm. not knowing what they're talking about too a lot of times. And so you'll get these big pushes and these big movements. And then somebody goes, wait a second, guys. Did anybody happen to read this? Exactly. You know? And it falls away. Mm -hmm. 
It's just we've become such a reactionary society, and and I and I shouldn't say be have become. We've always kind of been yes a reactionary society, and part of that I think has to do with the fact that our society is based a lot in religion. We came here, we set up our government to not dissuade anybody from any certain religion. The fact was, you could come here and you could worship who and how you wanted. Exactly. As long as, you know, whoever was in charge agreed with you. Pretty much. At least to a certain degree. Right. The The core tenet was that you could do whatever you want as long as it didn't harm anyone or anything else and didn't contravene any of the other laws. Right. Like, say you wanted to follow a religion that practiced human sacrifice. That would uh -huh. be an issue. Say you wanted to follow a religion that encouraged planting flowers. Go for it. Right, right. You want to worship the great spaghetti monster in the sky. Yes. And wear a cauldron on your head. You know what, buddy? You're going to look funny, but More do power it. to you. You know, and it's just like, I mean, there is a Church of Satan. Yes. And it's quite expansive. Or it was at one time. It was quite expansive. Now it's kind of died That's out same. again. But, you know, and it, was, and it was funny because a lot of people were like, the Church of Satan. Oh, my God. How can they... And when you really sit down and you look at the Church of Satan, because it's a topic that is interesting to me, not that I'm a Satanist, I have read some of the stuff about the Church of Satan. It's just really a religion of self-gratification. Right. Instant gratification. You do things that make you happy mm -hmm. and to hell with anybody else. Literally. Right. I mean, it's not like they're literally sitting there and worshiping Lucifer. Right. You know? It's more hedonism. Yeah, exactly. Than deviltry. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, and you look back at the witches and the witch trials. They were practicing a form of of earth of earth worship. Right. But it didn't fit well with the Puritans. Exactly. Not much did. Right. And so they said, Oh, well, they're they're stealing babies and eating them. Because now we can go after them. Right. They're, they're, as far as I can tell and everything I've read about the witch trials, there is nothing that says any of those women or men ever ate a single baby. Correct. You know, it was fallacies made up so that we could get rid of the people that weren't like us. Right. Which is, again, another form of censorship. censorship. You a know, more extreme form. Yeah, very extreme form. Yes. But censorship has been around and used forever. Exactly. You know, and the further you go back in history, the more extreme it was. But it just, censorship, censorship is one of those things, like, my first direct contact with censorship probably happened in the late 80s, early 90s. I was into, like, gangster rap. Okay. It only lasted for about 38 seconds, but there was a short period where, you know, my buddies were in the gangster rap, so I started listening to gangster rap. And you got the CDs with those little labels on them. Right. And you would go to Walmart, and Walmart had taken to censoring music. Didn't tell anybody. So I remember one of the bands I bought, and this isn't so much gangster rap, but I had bought um, Anthrax, okay. Attack of the Killer Bees. Which, anybody that knows that album knows there's one or two songs on there where there's really not much more in the song than screaming obscenities. Right. And what Walmart had done, and the reason they didn't have to mark it as censored, is they added the sound of bees. So wherever there was a swear word, they would add the sound of bees. So there was two songs on that album where it was just 
bees. Yep. With a little music in between. It was, I was mad, you know, and that's where I really started to think, you know, it's not Walmart's place. Exactly. It's not the United States government's place. It is my parents, because at that time I was probably, you know, between the ages of like 14 and 17, you know, right. something like that. If my parents don't want me to listen to this, they're going to take it away. And I've done the same thing with my kids. My kids come to me and they go, we want this CD or we want to buy this song off of Apple. Right. And I'll say, okay, well now, I mean, my girls are not old enough that I'm like, okay, why are you asking me? But at the time when they were younger, you know, when they were teens, 12, 13, 14 years old, I'd say, okay, let's go out to YouTube. We'd go out to YouTube. We'd listen to the song. Or I would say, all right, let me research that album, you know. And they were always good with that. They didn't always agree with me. But if I came back and I said no, they said, okay, we understand you said no, and we're not going to do it. And not because they thought I was right, but because they understood that I am dead. Right. And this is the rules, you know. So the fact I don't need Big Brother telling me how to raise my children. Exactly. If I wanted that, I would go to a country where Big Brother would tell me how to raise my children, mm -hmm. or even better, Big Brother would just raise my children, and... You wouldn't have to deal with it. Right. <laughs> so, and okay. you have more hair. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know about that, but maybe. Mm -hmm. It'd be nice if I did. But anyway, so we've said the, um, the, the um, dictionary. Yep. Uh, we've talked about Mark Twain a little bit. What else? What else is out there that, you know... To me, the things like like I was saying, you can buy Mein Kampf, you can buy the the Anarchist Cookbook. To me, if you're going to ban something, wouldn't those be something you're going to ban? Mm -hmm. You know. So what is what is what is a book that's been banned, whether it's still banned now or not, that you know about that you're just like, really? I don't get it. Harry Potter. Yes, I remember that now that you say yep. that. In fact, um, for part of my uh, college studies, I researched this one case out of Gwinnett County, Georgia. Okay. There is So a, Gwinnett County, that's Atlanta, correct? Atlanta's part so. of Gwinnett, yep. I believe. Okay, go on. So there is a woman in this county in Georgia who um, at last count had attempted to get Harry Potter banned four times from the local school. Because witchcraft? Well, the the first three times, she argued that it was attempting to teach magic and that magic is linked to the devil and it's against God and blah, right, blah, blah. Right, right, Okay. All those times got shot down. Fourth time, she got a little creative. She said that the books are lauding and um, elevating witchcraft and wizardry, which is part of Wicca, dealing with earth magic and healing, and mm -hmm. all of that stuff. And that the school, by using Harry Potter and providing it to the kids, was violating the First Amendment by sponsoring Wicca. Okay, I, I have to give this woman props for the way she went about it the fourth time. Yes. I give her props. She's still loony as hell. Yes. But I give her props. Mm -hmm. 
But you know what? A, a lot of people didn't understand uh, about why she was doing this. She has a bunch of kids. They're all homeschooled. None of her kids are in the school district that she's trying to get books banned from. And Harry Potter wasn't the only one that she was trying to get banned. So basically, her kids wanted Harry Potter. She didn't want to buy it for them, so she's going to get it banned. Maybe. I mean, logically, that's kind of what I'm hearing here. Mm -hmm. You know, like her 12-year-old's like, Mom, Harry Potter. And she's like, no. But Mom, they read it at the other school. No. No, they won't. I will stop them. Right. <laughs> you know, or or it's just, you know, social justice warrior gone rogue. Mm -hmm. Because there is there is a purpose for, you know, justice warriors, as they call themselves, or social warriors, as they call themselves. And a lot of times, I don't disagree with what they're doing. A lot of times I disagree with the way they go about doing them. Right. And this would be one of those cases. If she was doing it from a social justice warrior kind of uh, thing, I would say, okay, I understand what you're doing, and I understand why for you, you think this is important. But you know what? You, your seven kids or your 12 kids or whatever, you teach them. Don't make it part of your curriculum. There's no reason that, you know, Bobby and, and Jane down at school can't read this if their parents are okay with it. Exactly. So, I don't know. I don't know. Um, what else you got? Anything at this point? Well, there are two books, and they kind of go back to what you were talking about with Mark Twain. Okay. Um, a lot of people have tried to ban them because of certain words that are used or um, social elements that are presented. Okay. Catcher in the Rye and To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay, so Steinbaum. Stein... No, J.D. Salinger, Catcher Salin in the Rye. Right. And Harper Lee, To Kill a Mockingbird. Which one did Stein... Steinbeck wrote a lot. He did Grapes of Wrath. Grapes of Wrath. That's Man. what I was thinking of. Okay. Okay. So, these two classics. To Kill a Mockingbird was about a trial, was it not? Yes. The, the, the core piece of the book is um, there is a 19-year-old white woman who is, has accused a black man of rape and assault. Okay. And it's set in uh, late 30s, early 40s, southern Alabama. Jimmy Stewart's in the movie. He is. And um, the what a lot of people overlook is that the book is actually about the transformation of the lawyer's daughter, who is named Scout. Okay. That's her nickname. Right. And she starts off the book... She is five or six years old, and she is remarkably arrogant and prejudiced and bigoted and racist. And by the end of the book, she has grown, and it only takes place over the course of a couple of years. She has grown remarkably into a mature, worldly, tolerant young woman. So, But everybody fixates on the trial, and the trial in the movie is the centerpiece. Right. And uh, and some of the the dialogue, both in the book and in the film version, are remarkable. They're they're beautifully written. And now this is an author who obviously had a story to tell, because she only wrote the one book, correct? Or did she write one more? She wrote Ghosts at a Watchman shortly before she died. Okay. It was not as well received. Right, uh, and it was several decades later. Yes. Yeah. Okay. 
So, I mean, she was an author who obviously had something to say when she wrote that novel because yes. it was that novel and then she tried her hand at it again, you know, 30, 40 years later. Um, no, I'm sorry, I forgot the name of the other book. Uh, J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye. Okay, now Catcher in the Rye is a Depression-era book. Yep. I don't know Which, much more so about was, that. Um, Mockingbird. Right. Late, later stages of Depression. I don't know Catcher in the Rye. I don't know anything about the the biggest element with both of them is that a lot of people argue that it promotes racism. Okay. And that it uses the N word. You know, we gotta we gotta change the N word to mean something like cookies or something, <laughs> so that we can then, after we make it mean cookies, we can go ahead and just get rid of it, and nobody will miss it. Right. You know, it's just, it is, it's the the use of language as a tool for both good and bad sometimes just blows my mind. Um, well, there's a reason they call a lot of high-level arguments a war of words. Mm -hmm. Words are weapons. Yeah, absolutely, they can be. Uh, unfortunately, I, I always feel like they shouldn't be. You know, uh, you, you need to take intent when people talk. As well as words. I am not an overly cultured person. I read a lot, yes. I know a lot of big words, but I'm not an overly cultured person. I'm a blue jeans t-shirt kind of guy. And I use coarse language from time to time. Now, I try not to on this podcast, uh, even though they slip in there once in a while. I try very hard not to on our podcast because it's more of a of a teaching tool than... An enter well, hopefully it's entertaining, but it's more of a teaching thing than a uh, something like this or like our musically challenged podcast that I do with Lou. But if you catch me off the air, chances are you're probably going to hear something. I try really hard around little children not to curse a lot, but I can use the f bomb as a comma. I mean, let's be realistic. <laughs> Scott can back me up on that. Yes, I can, I can do that. But to me, language is something that promotes understanding, emotion, and, and perhaps knowledge. And the fact that our world has become so PC and so people are so scared to talk um, that it just makes me cringe sometimes because, you know, I have a white collar job. If I say the wrong thing to the wrong person, I no longer have a white collar job. Right. You know, so it, it sometimes gets very frustrating because the more frustrated I get, the easier it is to use those words that I'm not supposed to use. So I don't know. Now, you, on the other hand, very rarely do you swear in general. Right. Um, now, to that point, as you've mentioned, your kids are older. Mm-hmm. I have a seven-year-old and a five-month-old. That's true. And I'm a teacher. That's true. I need to be vastly more careful. Right. And I've kind of taken a page out of the books of the writers and producers of Red Dwarf and the Battlestar Galactica reboot. So you uh, substitute the, words? Yes. Uh, for example, with Red Dwarf, brilliant BBC dark comedy series from the 80s and 90s. Yep, I've a seen a little bit of a reboot in the 2000s. I've seen a few episodes. Mm -hmm. They wanted to be able to swear on air. 
Now, BBC has different rules than American television yes, does. Yes, they do. <laughs> but one of the core things is you're still not allowed to say certain words. And so Red Dwarf came up with Smeg. And it fills in for both the F-bomb and the S-bomb. They'd say Smeg off, this is a load of Smeg, so mm -hmm. on and so forth. In fact, I even have a Red Dwarf t-shirt that on the back of it, it says Smeg off. Battlestar Galactica, the Sci-Fi Channel reboot, same thing. They wanted to be able to swear, so they came up with frack. Frack this. This is frackin' ridiculous. So, and then even things like Firefly. Yep. Where they wanted to be able to swear, so they swear in Chinese. Chinese, yep. You know, and it's one of those things. But, uh, you know, at this point, I think, unless you've got something very important to talk nope. about, um, we're going to wrap it up. We've run over a little bit. Okay. But Big I wanna surprise. I wanna thank you for doing this, for allowing me to bring my equipment up here and um when I get home I will tell you how many mosquitoes I pull out of all of it. <laughs> but uh we're gonna we're going to uh go ahead and uh do a little bit of paperwork here and then we'll go into quarter of the day and we'll get out of here. Sounds good. So you ever wonder to yourself, how do I let this guy know how much I like or hate his podcast? Or think to yourself Man, I'd love to be a guest on this podcast. I have a great idea for a topic. Well, you're in luck. There are two ways for you to reach out to me. First, send me an email at whosepodcastisit at gmail.com and leave me a message. Or if you're more into the social media stuff, you can find me on Facebook at POI Network or at Whose Podcast Is It Anyway. Either way, I look forward to hearing from you. And we close this episode like we close every episode with Quote of the Day. So I get all my quotes from www.brainyquotes.com. Today's quote. Everything is funny as long as it's happening to someone else. William Penn Adair Will Rogers was a stage and motion picture actor, vaudeville performer, American cowboy, humorist, newspaper columnist, and social commentator. Known as Oklahoma's favorite son, Rogers was born to a prominent Cherokee Nation family in Indian Territory, now part of Oklahoma. He traveled around the world three times, made 71 movies, 50 silent films, and 21 talkies, and wrote more than 4,000 nationally syndicated newspaper columns. By the mid-1930s, the American people adored Rogers. He was a leading political wit of his time and was the highest-paid Hollywood movie star. Rogers died in 1935 with aviator Wiley Post when their small airplane crashed in northern Alaska. So you familiar with Will Rogers at all? A little bit. Um, some of his films and a lot of the charitable foundation stuff. Okay, yeah, I was familiar with his, his movies and such. I guess I never realized he was Native American. No, me neither. That... I always saw him portrayed as a cowboy. Right, yep, absolutely. So uh, somehow he... Uh, he was able to get over the Indian part of that. Yep. So anyway, again, Scott, thanks for doing this. My and uh, we will talk to you guys out there in, in, in Radio Land next week. Good night. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook. And follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.